In this episode, Chris Wozniki and I talk about theological anthropology and penal substitution. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Hey, how's it going? Doing well. Not bad. It's funny, we've already been talking for like 15 minutes, so this is very artificial, but... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I am in Canada, and I'm not bad. You're in Southern California, and I think you're doing okay. You just got your doctorate finished your yeah i just i just defended uh, about a little less than two weeks ago passed with no revisions so i am done done which feels nice yeah i think building up to it it's a lot of pressure but when you're done it's almost just like taking a breath of fresh air (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, it was a i wasn't super stressed out about the defense because i'd heard here in the american system it's more of a formality. Like if your dissertation passed, then it passed. Um, mm. You don't have to worry about that. So um, that was less stressful than comps were for me. Comps were extremely stressful going into it. Yeah, that might be true. But all that's behind me now. All yeah, that is behind me now. That's, that's true. Now you just have regular life, which is not stressful. Not at all. No. Not at all. <laughs> now you, uh, in your dissertation, I don't know the title, but you wrote on anthropology theological anthropology i think atonement or was that a different topic from your other Um, writings that's that's part of it uh it's not the main focus but it it makes its way in there yeah so why did you i mean maybe you didn't have this big picture as you started but why now when you on reflection like why do you think theological anthropology is so important why is that something that you spent i don't know three or four years on and yeah Yeah, so um the the title of my dissertation was Discerning Humanity, uh, the Promise of Christology for Developing T.F. Torrance's Anthropology. Now, there's a lot of different, like, working elements in that, um, in that title. But, um, yeah, my interest in theological anthropology actually came out of an interest in T.F. Torrance's Doctrine of Atonement. So I came across T.F. Torrance in an atonement seminar with Oliver Crisp back when I was a master's student. And um, sort of what I saw there was that he had a really interesting um, take on, or I would find out later, an interesting take on what human nature was. So that sort of sent me into this trajectory of looking at uh, theological anthropology. Um, So you asked the question, like, why is uh, it so important? So for Torrance, he has this, like, one throwaway line. Um, that's not exactly like a throwaway line, but um, he says that there's no point in theology that's more relevant today than theological anthropology, which is a pretty big statement. Um, it's interesting, though, because he doesn't actually really fully develop a theological anthropology. He has a few things here and there. I think there's like seven or eight um, separate like works specifically devoted to theological anthropology. But given the fact that he thinks it's so relevant but he doesn't really like work on it. I thought that was pretty um, interesting. Um, so why is it important today? Um, I think it's always important. I think it's always important to know who we are, um, how God made us, what he made us for. And I think those are some of the, the key issues that theological anthropology deals with. Um, what's the human creature's relation to God? That I think that's, at the end of the day, that's what theological anthropology tries to address our relation to God and what kind of creatures we are. 
Yeah, and I think probably a lot of people today might hear that and feel like, well, that's interesting. It's something you might pursue, but it's not immediately understandable why that might be relevant. But I'm sure you've worked this out much more than I have, but it's pretty relevant to how you understand Christ. It's pretty relevant to how you understand the atonement. It's pretty relevant to how you think about today identity. It's pretty relevant to how you think about trans and post-humanism and yeah. the various kind of uh, movements that are talking about augmenting who we are and what we are and our purpose in life. You know, moving yeah. your consciousness to uh, AI or something like that. We have all these kinds of conversations right. that are, some are quite futuristic, but some are very present. So post-humanism may be future identity is present and then i would say like in terms of dogma like basically our christology is entirely predicated on not entirely but is mostly predicated on a, a kind of understanding of what the human being is yeah now it might be useful yeah so yeah sorry i was gonna say you mentioned a, a couple of issues there identity and um and transhumanism um, that kind of stuff so when i was writing my dissertation um, I wanted to focus on uh, some of the more perennial issues. Um, identity is a really hot issue right now. It's something we really, I think, we have to figure out. Um, transhumanism is a thing we have to figure out because we're going to have to deal with it. Um, but I really wanted to focus on some of the, the issues that have been talked about and addressed throughout the history of the church. So, like, image of God, what is a human nature, um, what is a person, I think that's a we use that term quite a bit without having too much uh, understanding about what exactly it is. Now there are some classical definitions, Boethian definition and stuff. Um, what's humanity's vocation? What is, uh, what are we called to do as human beings? And uh, the final one is what is our destiny? And I think what you mentioned earlier about um, how it relates to Christology, I think that's a really uh, important one too. Like what are, what's the end? Like why are, why are we created? What are we for? Um, where is this all going? I think those are all um, perennial issues in theological anthropology. And I think those probably should um, inform the more hot button issues mm. that have come up recently, identity, uh, transhumanism, sexuality, that kind of stuff. I think those other core issues, um, almost dogmatic issues, although I wouldn't call them dogmatic because um, they're not enshrined in any of the ecumenical creeds in the same way that like Chalcedon enshrines Christology or Nicaea in Trinitarian theology. Um, but they are issues that just, they do come up across the history of the church. They need to be addressed in every generation. I wonder if we could do this just to kind of concretize this. Could I maybe go through the list of some of the things you said and ask you for an unnuanced, but, understandable definition of like nature and person. So like, uh, let's start with what's a human nature. How would you define a human nature? Uh, uh personally, or what are well, some just, just like kind of your reflection, just a, a generic kind of definition that you're, that you're okay with. We can kind of work through this list. Cause I think it might be helpful. I think theological anthropology is important, but it's hard to make it feel, it seems abstract. So let's try to make it concrete by giving some, some guts to yeah. it. So what's a human nature? Yeah. So like, uh, so like human nature, I would say is whatever are the necessary and sufficient conditions for being a human being. Okay. Is that too abstract? <laughs> well, that's not, that's not too abstract. And then, you, and then you, and then maybe you can fill that out. Maybe right. you can fill out 
what that list of uh, conditions actually is. Um, classically, you might think of a human nature being um, some sort of abstract universal that all things that are human beings participate in. Um, I think that's a pretty classical understanding of um, a nature that is a human nature is. Yeah. Okay. So what, what it makes, what it, what's required to be a human. And I think a lot of people in the past have talked about the kind of immaterial, material side, soul, body, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. uh, there, there's something to be said about what makes an individual. So how would you define a, a person? A person, um, I think I actually fall pretty closely in line with um, the Boethian mm -hmm. uh, definition. So uh, a substance, an individual substance of uh, rational nature. I think that's um, how I would define a person. And that definition of personhood I think, can then be parsed out into different types of personhood. Um, so like human beings are persons. They fit that definition. Angels, I would say, uh, fit that definition as well. Um, God um, fits that definition. You might have a character like Yoda who, who might fit that definition also. He's not a human person or an angelic person, but he's a Yodic. So Yoda's person. a person, but Yoda not necessarily a, a human nature. Yeah, he doesn't have a human nature, so he's not a human person, but he is a, he is a person. Okay, so we have a human nature, that which is required to be a human irreducibly a person is an individual expression of, of a human rational nature. So uh, you talked about purpose or telos. Uh, what's, what's the purpose of being a human? The purpose of being a human um, is at the end of the day, I think to be united to God. I think that's why um, God created us uh, in order to be united to him. Um, one, because that's how he's glorified uh, and too, because that's how we get to enjoy him. Hmm. Um, so I think that is what, at the end of the day, God made us to be in this intimate union type relationship with him. And so I think down to. that's helpful. And I think, you know, we, we were created by God and we returned to God in Christ. There's a kind of orderness to it. Now you mentioned something else, which is the image of God, which is probably the, the language that most people use today, at least when they're trying to think about what are we really as, as humans. So I know there's some controversy around the exact definition of the image of God, but what do you think is a, is a helpful way to describe being created in God's image? Yeah. Um, so you, you tend to hear a bunch of typologies about this and typically there's um, the threefold typology. One is the image of God um, has something to do with um, our substance or structure uh, and people in that camp will talk about how uh, the image of God is the fact that we're rational or the image of God is the fact that we have free will. Um, and you have a uh, more sort of relational camps, which uh, tend to stress the fact that God is at, uh, at his core relational in nature and we are relational in nature. So that's how we image God. And they're more sort of functional accounts, which want to stress the fact that um, the image is something that we do and they draw on ancient Near Eastern literature in order to make that claim. Um, I'm not like super happy with um, parsing these out in such a way that they're completely distinct. I think um, if you look across church history, um, even with specific theologians, you find elements of these working their way into how they understand a human being. Um, but I tend to think that 
more functional account is the more preferable one. Um, I think exegetically, I see a lot, a pretty strong basis for that. Um, even though in the tradition that hasn't really been emphasized quite as much, there has been an emphasis on humanity's dominion um, and authority and their rulership, but not necessarily that being the image of God. So Chrysostom, he, um, he holds that view, and Calvin is not down with it. He's, he loves Chrysostom, but basically he's like, well, he's right on like most things, but I have no idea how, wrong, how he got this that wrong by following uh, this particular view. Um, Peter Martyr Vermigli, um, he also places a really strong emphasis on function and rulership as the image of God, Wolfgang Masilas does too. So it's there in the tradition, um, but I think the strongest case for it is made exegetically. And when you say function, what functions do you have in mind? Um, I have in mind the function of being vice regents or um, stewards of God's creation. Um, so you see that uh, right at the beginning of Genesis, um, God gives dominion to Adam uh, over creation. And the ancient Near Eastern parallels is that oftentimes this uh, ancient Near Eastern ruler would place some sort of statue or image of uh, himself um, in order to represent the fact that that ruler has authority um, and presence. I think that's another element that's sort of missed out with this functional view, uh, authority and presence in this particular location. So we're like little, little statues of, um, of God. Right. Which is I, which is I think why um, there's a prohibition on, on making graven images because there is already an image like we are the image. So you think humans created in the image of God are the icon of God, and therefore the prohibition. All right, I can go along with that. I think <laughs> I mean Christ is the icon of God in whom yeah. we are renewed into the image of of God in Christ. So. I think there's something to it. Okay, so we have we have human nature, whatever the irreducible thing that we are. We have person, which is an, uh, an individual individualized nature of some sort. Uh, we have purpose, which is a un union with God, and then we have the image of God, which is essentially functional. Or no, that's an overstatement because you said it was all the different things, but function is the is the accent. Yeah, and that function is is vice regency over the earth. So is, is there anything we're missing in terms of anthropology that we can, that I missed? Um, in terms of... Just like basic definitions. Yeah, no, I, I think that, that covers some of the, the most um, key issues in theological anthropology. Then I think when it transitions then, like there's a couple of topics, it's Christology and atonement. So uh, Christology <clears throat> basically says, you know, the logos assumed a human nature, but not a human person. He did that so that the only person in Christ is the Word, such that the Word could live and die for our sake as a, a true and genuine human in his person. So uh, are, are there any things, like in your work, have you kind of correlated the idea of Christology, the Christological nature, personhood, with this theological anthropology? Like, how do you see that working together? Is it, which comes first, Christology or us kind of thing? yeah. Uh, that's a that's a really good question. Um, yeah, so I, 
when you were sort of describing um, this relation, I think you hit on the really obvious um, way that they're, the, those two topics are related. Um, so you can think of it in terms of three questions, like what is the end goal, right? What's wrong and how do you fix it? And your answer, like, uh, and you're set up for this question, address all of those things, right? Um, what's the end goal? Well, the end goal is union. Um, what's wrong is that we're estranged from God. Uh, how do you fix it? Um, that's going to involve or Orthodox Christology and figuring out in what ways um, Christ is fully man, um, fully human. Um, I think a helpful analogy that I uh, sometimes use when sort of drawing the, the relationship between these two together uh, is to think of an, an inanimate object like a car, right? Um, if a car, you know what a car's function is. A car's function is to get you around. Um, but in order to know what that function is, you're gonna to have to analyze some of its parts. What does an engine do? What do the tires do? How does this fit with that? How does this work together? Um, and if that car is broken down, you're gonna to need to know what, what its end goal is, how, how it's supposed to function if you're gonna fix it. Um, and I think that's how atonement draws us into thinking a little bit about theological anthropology. Obviously Christ saves us, um, he redeemed us, but what does he redeem us for? To answer that question, you have to look back at what we're created for. Um, I think that's a really obvious way that they're connected. I think there's another way that they're uh, connected. Um, so I, I wrote a uh, sort of like a paper, kind of a paper, kind of a blog, sort of in between uh, for, the, for the Evangelical Philosophical Society. They had like a series of essays on um, anthropology and the question that I ask there, or the approach that I ask there is, what account of human nature best makes sense of a particular account of atonement? So what account of human nature best makes sense of a particular account of atonement? And what I had in mind was somebody like T.F. Torrance, who um, has this robust sense of, uh, of vicarious humanity, uh, of Christ, that Christ is like doing all these things, um, not just as a substitute, not just as a representative, but somehow um, in a very strong sense uh, for us. Um, and I end up analyzing that and saying, well, if this is actually gonna work for him, then human nature needs to be this one thing that everybody participates in. Um, so by asking that, that's just one example, right? By asking that question, what does a human nature need to be in order for this doctrine of atonement to work, I think you start to get a lot of mileage on anthropological questions. Well, let's talk about the atonement then. So uh, there's a purpose to bring us to God that has to happen by means of some reconciliation if we're estranged. Yeah. Um, I know you, you've talked about you know, penal substitutionary atonement and so on. So maybe based on what you just said, um, Let's talk about penal substitution, but then let's also ask, talk about what account of humanity we need for that to work. Because <laughs> you kind of proposed the topic already. So maybe start, if you could, by defining what penal substitution is. And then maybe if you can work into that, what account of humanity is maybe not required, but is fitting for PSA to be true. Yeah. Um, so there are different versions of PSA. I think PSA is actually sort of a family of views, um, but there are a few core elements that fall into uh, these different um, 
accounts of penal substitution. One is that um, human beings are sinners. Um, and sinners deserve to be punished for their sin. Um, second is that Christ undertakes the punishment um, or the consequences which would have been a punishment uh, if he would have committed them um, for that sinners deserve. So there's this idea that there needs to be some sort of consequence for uh, the actions of those human beings and that Christ takes on that consequence. Uh, and third, it's that because of what Christ did, sinners no longer need to undertake that punishment or that consequence because God's justice has been satisfied in Christ. So those are three key elements. There's um, sin and the penalty. There's the fact that Christ um, takes this on as a substitute and that sinners no longer need to um, do, uh, take this on themselves because God's justice has been satisfied. Just before um, we move on, can I just quickly ask, you, you mentioned there's a family of, of uh, variations on PSA. What, yeah. what, these are the essential elements. So when I think of that, I think of two basic presentations. I think the early reformed one which really focuses on satisfaction. And then I think of more like the late reformed scholastic one, which really focuses on, I don't know, penalty wrath kind of language. Mm -hmm. not, not that they both, they overlap for sure. They're the same yeah. view from different kind of viewpoints. Um, are you, what other ones are you thinking of? Because I only, when I think of it, I only think of these basic two, maybe on a spectrum, there might be ways to work in. Yeah, yeah so um, in recent literature, you'll see, um, some people point out the fact that um, one Christ undertakes the actual punishment for sinner um, for sin that sinners deserve. And then there's another view, which um, doesn't want to say that he is in fact punished, but that he takes on the consequences, which if it had fallen upon sinners would have been a punishment. So there's a, a fine grained distinction between um, an actual punishment and um, consequences. Mm. And there's, there's reasons for that. Um, there is another sort of discussion um, that's brought up in regards to this. So you might think that the typical PSA account requires, um, says that God is required to punish sin. Um, and I think that's how most people would sort of flesh it out, that uh, we need a penal substitute because God is required according to his justice to, to punish it. Now, um, some people like uh, Carl Moser have, brought up the fact that that was not universally held, um, that there are some who believe that God um, could have just sort of forgiven it, but um, for other reasons, he decides to punish it. So there's a difference between um, God uh, satisfying his justice necessarily through the specific action, and then God perhaps doing it in different ways, and then perhaps God um, undertaking being a penal substitute because of some other sort of further end. So I think those are families, um, further distinctions that can be drawn. Uh, and then you might think that something like a moral government theory is um, a really far away cousin of, uh, of penal substitution because there's a penal element going on. Um, and in some ways there's a, a substitution element, but not really. Let's have a look. Cause I think sometimes we're so used to hearing it said with one idiom that there's actually a kind of a broad range of theological idioms by which you can describe the the kind of reality of penal substitution i think that's helpful because sometimes like people use slightly different language but the theological judgment is still virtually the same <clears throat> meaning the yeah. judgment is 
uh, we're sinners separated. Christ is not a sinner and dies in her place to satisfy God so that we can be reconciled. Like that might be like the kind of core line. Yeah. yeah there, that's like the minimalist. There's a minimalist account. That's what I'd want to call it. So uh, then transitioning on back to the question of theological anthropology. Um, so you kind of mentioned, we've kind of defined PSA. So what then does PSA require in terms of an anthropological view or maybe not require that's too strong um what is a fitting anthropology yeah um a fitting anthropology so i think this is going to vary with the different families that you have um but a fitting anthropology i think probably the core thing that is going to be needed is some account in which you can explain how christ can become a penal substitute how christ relates to all other humans how all other humans are related to one another. Um, I think you probably need some, at least in my opinion, you need some strong sort of metaphysical account of union that allows him to be a substitute for us. Um, and there are other ways to get it. You can get it through a merely sort of legalistic, um, not, in, not in the legalistic, not in the ne- negative sense, but merely sort of forensic um, sort of federalist kind of way. Um, by itself, um, without any sort of metaphysical union. Um, but I, I think that the main anthropological point is that you need some way for Christ's action to work for all those who are elect and all those whom he died for. It's interesting you mentioned both the sort of federal view and the metaphysical, not that, not that they're separated, but they're, they're emphases. But they can be, some, some people do want to say. Oh, interesting. And I'd almost say like, and I, and I don't know if this is you know true in terms of all the scholarship, but like the federal view is almost just the sort of historical external uh, correlate to the metaphysical underpinnings yeah. of what's actually happening. Like, I don't really view them as opposites. I just kind of use them as two different ways of seeing the problem or not the problem, the question yeah. where, okay, so Christ is our head historically federally you know in adam or as our king or however you want to word it and then but metaphysically i mean there's a there's a, a kind of a real personal union of humanity and divinity by which humanity can be restored redeemed whatever language you want to use is that is, yeah. is that kind of where yeah, you're that's, going that's with sort it? of what i'm that's sort of what i'm thinking right so um christ has this sort of federal headship relationship to uh the human beings, all of humanity. Um, but what allows him to have that relationship? Well, on one hand, you can simply say that's how history sort of worked out with Adam, um, being a descendant of Adam, being a descendant of David, all that sort of stuff. Um, the true and rightful king of, of Israel and his people. Um, so you could work it out that way. Um, but also you can bring it back to the, the key anthropological issues like image of God, right? Like, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Christ is the true image of God. And I think um, that creates another layer of, of relationship there uh, in which we can call him our, our federal head or king, whatever you want to call it, um, precisely because he has this position as sort of the archetype of humanity. I think that's one way that anthropology end up relating to one another. It seems like the New Testament is able to use both idioms. I mean, Paul can, Colossians 3.10, Ephesians 4.24, talk about us being renewed into the image of 
God, Christ, or whatever. But he is also talking about uh, Jesus as the Lord and Messiah, the, the offspring of David. So yeah. there's both idioms being used, the historical idiom and then the, the metaphysical idiom, if you want to call it that. Yeah. And, and the Colossians passage, I think, is really interesting, right? Because you get that image of God sort of language. Um, <clears throat> you get that sort of archetype, um, forerunner sort of language for humanity. But you also get some of the rulership um, over creation language that I mentioned earlier with the functional mm. view of, of the image of God. So that seems all to be sort of weaved in together. And in that Colossians passage, um, it's precisely because he has these features um, that he can be the one who redeems us. He can be what? Sorry, I missed that last The one point. who redeems us. The one who redeems us. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that in, in these terms. But you're right. Colossians does talk about him being the first one of creation. He can rule all this kind of stuff. Uh, but that's also connected to his being the image of God, at least in the context. So yeah, uh, that's interesting. And he's a creator. Um so we have that. Uh, we have the, these kind of pictures coming up. So let's go back to PSA for a second. And what, like, what are the problems that you see in terms of like dogmatic descriptions of PSA that maybe run into unintended problems in terms of anthropology <clears throat> or Christology? Hmm. Like, where where do we? What kind of language are we? Do we sometimes use and accidentally? Because I don't think it's intentional. Typically, run amok. Um. Well, I think, yeah, I'm just trying to parse out this question. So I, I think what you might have in mind, um, I think what you might have in mind is questions about like the Trinity. I know you mentioned um, theological anthropology, but you said sort of dogmatic issues when it comes to PSA. I think the classic one is um, that somehow like the Trinity breaks or is disrupted. Mm -hmm. Now there's two in the Trinity. Um, as if that could happen. I think that's one of the dogmatic issues that comes up when people try to describe PSA, that they unwittingly end up arguing for something like this. Um, and then once you sort of s sit down and, and explain it, it's like, well, that's not exactly what I want to say. Well, it's like, well, maybe your rhetoric is just too strong um, and you've ended up saying something that you never actually wanted to say. Um, so I think that's, uh, on the end, on, on the side of people who do favor PSA, I think that might be one of the sort of dogmatic errors that they fall into. Um, now, on the side of people who critique PSA, there's a similar sort of um, not Trinitarian enough argument that people make. So if you think of the divine child abuse objection that people often bring up against PSA, that, um, that penal substitution encourages or, um, yeah, encourages people who are being abused to stay in those relationships that encourages them to be submissive and not to respond and sort of just um, willingly take uh, abuse or that it looks a lot too much like actual unnatural father abusing their child. Um, I think dogmatically that doesn't really work either because um, you have a faulty view of the Trinity. So that would work if the Trinity, that objection would go through if the Trinity wasn't a reality, if these were, um, individual if they were numerically identical numerically uh, distinct uh, agents but because the father son um, they all share the same mind share the same will share the same nature that sort of objection doesn't actually fall through so on the psa side and on the side against psa i think there are some trinitarian issues that need to be dealt with i think there might also be an anthrop 
logical one too. For example, if you go to the cross and this, and we view it this way, that there is a kind of transactional forgiveness, which is true. There is. Well, what happens then to our human nature? If we don't talk about body, <laughs> rational body, uh, rational soul and body being redeemed as well, then we live today and we're still in the muck of it. We're forgiven, but there's no transformation. So I do think there, I mean, this kind of goes to a question I wanted to talk about. But yeah, there is a penal substitutionary atonement, but that is not disconnected to the other things that Christ does for us in terms of atoning work or in terms of redemptive work. And yeah. I think sometimes <clears throat> we isolate PSA and then ignore the other truths that scripture teaches on this topic. We get into a place where we're like, we're not transformed. We're merely justified, which I know maybe yeah. sounds odd to say, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a problem. I don't think there are early reformers got into this problem, but I think sometimes by how we talk, we accidentally make it sound like well, we're forgiven because of the double imputation. And yeah. now we're just like, okay, cool. <laughs> but yeah, you've talked about Torrance yeah, and others. So and I, I know he had a strong view of human nature being redeemed. Can, can you kind of like talk yeah. into that and maybe then connect some of the other atonement um, perspectives as well? Yeah. So um, connecting it to, to the, the point you just made, um, I, I like to distinguish, and there's a few others who do this too. Um, Eleanor Stump does, um, Fred Sanders does, but I think it's a really important distinction to make is uh, between atonement uh, narrowly conceived and atonement broadly conceived. Now, atonement narrowly conceived um, focuses almost exclusively on sort of the, the paschal action of Christ, you know, his death, his resurrection, uh, his passion. So it's the Passion Week sort of is where atonement is located. Um, now, people who want to emphasize that would definitely say, like, yeah, atonement is a Trinitarian work. It's the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. They're all involved. But the emphasis lands on what Christ has done in this very short um, period of time. Um, so that's the, the, broad, the, the narrow one. I think there's also a broad way of understanding it, which atonement just is the entire work of the triune God, which has an emphasis on Christ and perhaps also the spirit um, that brings estranged humanity into union and at one with God. I think that's sort of um, what you're hinting a little bit about that the at one mint, uh, and this is a term Torrance uh, uses quite a bit, that one mint of uh, God and humanity um, happens more than just the cross, right? It, the at one moment um, occurs during Christ's life. That's part of it. Uh, it occurs after when um, atonement is actually applied, not just accomplished, but it's also applied. Um, and that has a, the, the application of the at one moment has a transformative effect. I mean, how can you be united to God and not be transformed? Um, that in and of itself changes your very identity, it changes who you actually are. Um, you're no longer this sort of individual uh, that's unrooted or this individual that only um, relies upon yourself, but you're an individual that's now defined by this relationship with mm. God himself. I think that's helpful. And kind of going back to, I mean, you mentioned it, our goal is a union with God. And so when we're justified, when we are forgiven because Christ died, on our behalf, satisfying the wrath of God do us for our sins. Because you're united with Christ, then you're, you have a brand new relationship 
And that relationship is, is, in my view, growing and transforming you from one level of glory to another, you know, sanctification essentially. But I think there's something too. I think when we isolate maybe penal substitution from the broader conception of atonement, as you mentioned, the broader and narrow, then we, we sometimes make salvation seem very one-sided. It's, it's merely the forgiveness, but it's forgiveness and then new relationships so that you can do what you were created to do. Is that, am I kind of hitting yeah. where you would agree or how yeah, would you, kind of you talk are. about that? Yeah, you are. And I think a, a, a good sort of pastoral illustration would be um, my relationship with my wife, right? So um, we can talk about that particular day when I got married when the ceremony occurred legally, there was change that occurred. Um, but it wasn't just a sort of legal union, right? It's not just this legal fiction. There's an actual um, relational union that happens there. And because of that relational union, I'm now actually a different person, not in, not in like a, a, diff, a numerically distinct person, but um, qualitatively, I'm a different person um, after that ceremony than before. And not just legally, but but relationally, I'm a different person. And that union, uh, which is now part of who I am, um, that should be changing me. That should be transforming me more and more um, every day as that union, that bond of union is strengthened between mm. my wife and I. So if, if we can talk about stuff like that when it comes to our human relationships, how much more would that be true when we're talking about our relationship with God himself? What's interesting, even relationally, what you're saying is like, if, if, if I'm married or when I'm married on that day, I become husband to what, to my wife and she becomes wife to her husband. There is that, there's a new relational quality that you gain by name, but it's not merely just a name because it represents something that's real in terms of a, a new way of relating to someone else, a new way of having a relationship and existing and thinking and moving and so on. And the same thing I think is probably in many ways true. I mean, it's maybe cheesy to say, but his name is Christ and we're called Christians. <laughs> you know, yeah. we relate to him in a brand new way. We're not, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and we're not ashamed yeah. to call God our father, Jesus, our brother, God, our father. I know those are kind of finite analogies of sort of a, a deeper reality, but I think it can be helpful yeah. to conceive of in these yeah. kind of regular. And, and Luther words. brings up this, Luther brings up the same metaphor um, when he's talking about the great exchange, he, he thinks about the great exchange in terms of um, marriage as a metaphor. I think it's in bondage of the will that he talks about it, I think, but he uses this marriage analogy too. Yeah. Well, I think it's helpful because we, we understand it in, in regular life that when you get married to someone, yeah, you gain a new title, you're married, your husband, your wife, but there's like a whole thing. And then eventually uh, you might become a father or mother. And then a child to be a son or daughter to you as father. And they're not just mere words. They actually signify something beyond the sign of the term. So, okay, that's helpful. I think so we got penal substitution, theological anthropology. We figured out that you're a doctor. You uh, understand these things. And it was kind of fun to talk to you about them. But I think a lot of people may be hearing some of this. And and so my, my assumption is that most people when it comes to theological anthropology have heard very little about it in their lifetime. And it's because it doesn't, it hasn't come up in the past. I think there's a resurgence of theological anthropology and there's going to have to be because of Christology and the debates that are going to come around that. But I'm curious now um, for different kinds of people, what books you might recommend. So for two categories of people, first is like 
the person maybe who doesn't know about this, this is brand new. So kind of an introductory text, but then beyond that, like kind of more, um, someone like you, what books do you like to read? And if you could name a few of them and then like provide like an annotated bibliography (laughs) as you're naming them, that would be like why she would read them kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, in terms of theological anthropology, I think a really helpful, um, introduction is Mark Cortez's, um, Theological Anthropology, A Guide for the Perplexed. Um, that title, I think the title is funny, A Guide for the Perplexed. I think it's just a nicer way of saying for dummies. Do you remember that series of books? Like there was yeah, a, yeah. There was a yellow cover for dummies. So it's like Theological Anthropology for Dummies. Um, he provides a really helpful um, introduction, sort of laying out different views. Uh, he covers image of God, free will, uh, sexuality. I think there might be one more. So just um, really key uh, both the perennial issues and some of the more hot button issues. I think that's a good introduction. Um, I also really, really like, uh, and this might be sort of the next level of uh, if you're getting into it, um, his book, Resourcing Theological Anthropology. And in that book, he um, really places, um, he really examines how Christology relates to theological anthropology, which is the kind of stuff that I'm interested in doing. And I think that book was actually the impetus for the approach that I took specifically with Torrance in my dissertation. So if you think of his book as the approach, mine is sort of an application of the approach to one specific um, theologian in my dissertation. So that book, um, I also like Anthony Hockma's, um, I forgot what the title is, I think it's maybe created in his image. Um, it's an introduction to theological anthropology um, from a pretty reformed, but broadly reformed sort of perspective. Um, I think, yeah, I think those are some of the, the ones that um, are really helpful um, when it comes to just like generally like getting into theological anthropology and some of the more perennial issues. Well, that's helpful. We'll have to, I've read one of those books, so I'm sure I can pursue yeah. the other two anyway. So Chris, man, I appreciate you talking with me and allowing me to learn from you. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me.